Welcome to Do It For The Gram and Enneagram podcast with your host, certified Enneagram coach, Milton Stewart. What we do it for the Enneagram, not Instagram. We make moves to improve our community and our lives. Oh my goodness, I'm so excited to be here. This series is really elevating and listening to the voices of amazing women in the Enneagram space right now. So I'm super excited to have on a really amazing person, a really good friend, someone who's interviewed me on the podcast prior to and brings a wealth of very interesting knowledge in a combination of Enneagram work that she does, along with some stuff that Brene Brown does. So I want to introduce the amazing, the incredible Elizabeth Worm. How are you doing today? Hey, Milton. I'm doing good. Thank you for the introduction. the Enneagram? Are you serious about growing and being liberated? Do you love to learn and grow in a safe community? Well, my Kaizen Community Enneagram program is perfect for you. I teach 12 weekly classes on Thursday night. I am only taking around 15 people. I would rattle off more details and all the benefits, but I'm pretty sure you would rather read them and get back to this episode. So simply go to kaizen-enneagram-community.mn.co or check out the show notes or find the IG page bio with the link tree or go to kaizencareers.com to find out more information. Learn and grow in safe community with others who love the Enneagram. Sign up while spots are still available. Hope to see you there. Can you share a little bit about who is Elizabeth Worm and what does she kind of do with Enneagram? I play a lot of roles in life. I am uh, by day a corporate IT recruiter. So I study humans <laughs> by talking to them all day. I also am a theater director and I am an Enneagram coach. And I did my master's thesis in grad school on using the Enneagram as a tool for leadership in the arts. So combining the ways that directors in theater can make a safe space for the nine types of actors to be vulnerable and creative in their acting and their creative process. I also am a big fan, like you said, of Brene Brown. And I've looked at and taught some classes based off of her work, looking at vulnerability, shame, empathy, compassion, courage through the lens of the Enneagram. So Brene talks about vulnerability, but does everyone experience vulnerability the same way? I think there are probably nine different types of vulnerability. I think that there's an interesting like when you talk about the childhood wounded, the childhood messages, the lost message and the unconscious messages, I've done some work in shaping those, revoicing them as if they were to come from shame. And what is shame's voice for each of the type? How does shame come out in that internal monologue? And usually it comes out around that childhood wound. And then the healing message, how do you combat that? The healing message is the lost message and combating the shame and identity. So I 
I dabble in a lot of things. <laughs> I am interested in a lot of things. Yes, yes, yes. Most definitely. Like, clearly your plate is full. And as a seven talking to someone's a two, I'm pretty sure we know about full plates and working on, <laughs> which will come in a little bit later. We'll talk about something that goes around like having a two full plate and what to do and different things like that. So we'll, we'll talk about that. I think that's going to be super interesting. Something I'm fascinated in um, in different episodes is I really value the inner work that I see other people do. It is one way that personally, I believe you can really measure, I don't know the right word, but you can really measure like an Enneagram teacher or coach by how well they can do it by, based on the, their own inner work and the work that they do. Like that means a lot. You're one of the people that I know that does a lot of inner work and you work damn hard at your inner work. <laughs> and so I'm always intrigued to know currently what are you doing inner work wise as of right now and maybe what benefits are you seeing from it? I'm going to use some subtype and instinct language here. So I'm a two, I'm a social two, then sexual, I support with sexual, and then I'm self-pres repressed. So self-preservation is the last zone, the last instinct that I use. If you study through Russ, Russ Hudson, and he talks about the, the zones of self-pres, you've got self-care, you've got practicality and maintenance, and you've got domesticity. You know, I'm not too bad at some aspects of domesticity. I am good at decorating. <laughs> so my house actually looks pretty nice. But the other two are a real struggle and have been a, a real struggle. So one thing that I think has had me start working on my self-care the practicality and maintenance of my physical body has been, I was diagnosed with Crohn's disease, which is an autoimmune disease in 2015. And what that means is that my immune system doesn't recognize my gut as a part of my body. It thinks it's a foreign substance. And so it attacks it. I get lesions in my gut and can't absorb food. There becomes extra inflammation in my body. There's all sorts of side effects, a lot of chronic pain, a lot of dietary restrictions, things like that. And so that was back in 2015. I was running a theater company. I was applying to grad schools. I was working full time. My stress level was really high. I think I was living in kind of a state of chronic stress, which means that my immune system was on high alert. There were some things in my life that kind of all culminated and I could just, the night before I ended up in the hospital, I could kind of feel there was something that broke. It felt like it broke inside of me. And um, I ended up with really severe abdominal pain for 12 hours and they took me to the hospital to get a CT scan. They thought I had kidney stones because the pain was so bad, but it ended up after going through a colonoscopy, it ended up being Crohn's disease. So for a little while, I was in denial. <laughs> um, I was like, I'll just take these pills and I'll be fine. And I kept you know, running my life as normal. But uh, about six months later, my body just completely shut down and I was really, really sick. I had to pay attention to my body at that point if I was going to survive. And that's really hard. <laughs> really hard for me, at least. So it's been a journey. It's been seven years, a little over seven years since I was diagnosed. And things like figuring out what kind of food I can eat, that takes so much energy. 
because I am gluten-free, I'm dairy-free. Those things cause extra inflammation in my body. So there are certain raw veggies I can't eat. There are seeds and nuts and beans and corn kernels I can't eat. So just the act of meal prepping and like making sure that I have food in the fridge, that's really hard for me to spend time doing because my social instinct is like, we need to be out there networking. At the time I was running a theater company on top of going to grad school. And like, I was, I was doing all of these things, working a full-time job. And I have been guilty of when my brain won't shut off, when my social instinct is, is leading the charge when it's turned on high volume, I've been known to be on LinkedIn after midnight searching hashtag Enneagram and connecting with other Enneagram professionals (laughs) instead of sleeping, (laughs) you know, just doing professional development at all hours of the night. And so one example I can give you, a lot of it is noticing when social is being loud and then sometimes saying, you know what, you're going to take a seat for a minute and we're going to see what self-prez has to say. So at one point, I was living in an apartment that I didn't have curtains up, and the light was just so bright. And I I suffer from chronic migraines as well. And so I would have just these days where I would be in bed for 12 hours, just couldn't get up, just whole body hurting, very light sensitive. And I was so desperate because the light was just so bright. I ended up, because I didn't have curtains, I just taped black trash bags over the windows and I left them there for nine months. (laughs) (laughs) It worked, I guess, but wow. (laughs) It was like I kept meaning to get curtains. And then at one point I even purchased curtains. And I think I had the curtains for like three or four months before there was finally one night when somebody had invited me to do something and I said, you know what? I think I'm going to stay home tonight. And the social instinct, I was like, you know what? You've been social a lot this week. We're going to stay home and we're going to just take care of some stuff around the house. And that was the night that I finally put up the curtains. And I was so thankful to myself because the next time I got a migraine, I had these blackout curtains that just completely shut out the light and it made it so much more bearable to be in the room. And I was like, I have lived in (laughs) this pain and suffering for nine months. I have even had the curtains. I just haven't had the time set aside to put up the curtains. And that I think is a practicality that is a domesticity. I would put like putting up curtains in your bedroom so that your migraine light sensitivity like... (laughs) is affected. Yeah. Like yeah. that's self-prez. <laughs> so I recently bought a house. I bought a house a year and a half ago and I was very nervous buying a house because I'm a single person. I am not a practical person and my parents live 45 minutes away. So they're not like just next door where they can just like come help me when something breaks or whatever. And I knew that there's so many practicality and maintenance (laughs) tasks. With the house, yep. There's so many self-pressed tasks that come with owning a home, especially for someone who also suffers with a chronic illness. I was worried about, you know, are there going to be days where I don't have the energy to maintain my home? So I decided it was going to be an Enneagram exercise for me to buy a house. When when the air conditioner breaks, which it has, it is a self-pres exercise for me to call the AC guy to find, number one, to find an AC guy, but then to call the AC guy and make that a priority because otherwise I will just put it off. I'll sit and just put it off. 
right now I'm currently putting off, there's a wasp's nest um, outside (laughs) and I just walk very quickly past it. (laughs) I'm going to send you some spray, okay? I'm just going to send you some spray. Here's the thing, I have spray. (laughs) I just haven't had the courage to take it down, to spray it. And so, you know, Things like that where I have to, like, for example, there was, I had black mold in my basement and that's like the worst kind of mold that you can have. And it was contained, there was a leaky sink in my basement. It was contained to underneath the sink and I let it sit there for a long time. Before I finally started researching, you know, plumbers <laughs> to come fix the leaky sink, I just shoved a bucket under there and like had the bucket kind of, but the mold was still there. And so it was a whole weekend process of me one day finally deciding, you know what, you have to deal with this mold. You have to deal with it. And so I researched, I got vinegar. Apparently vinegar works better than bleach does on porous surfaces. A little homeownership tip for people who are dealing with mold. And so I doused the whole thing in vinegar, let it sit for a night. So that would kill the mold. And then I used these old beach towels and I wiped it all up and there was water everywhere and I had to wipe all that up and I was disinfecting as I was going. And so that was a whole process. And then I got a plumber out to fix the leak under the sink, which was another, you know, another day. And not too long afterwards, my basement flooded because we had a really big rainstorm and the sewers backed up and the it came through through my basement. And so then I had several boxes that were wet and I was like, well, I'm just going to let them dry. <laughs> my dad was like, no, they'll turn moldy and then you'll end up with more mold in your basement. And, you know, look at how this whole process you just went through to get the mold out from underneath your sink. Like you have to get rid of these boxes. So that was another weekend where I was just taking boxes and taking all the stuff out of the boxes, putting them in new boxes, and then throwing away the old boxes, the wet, mildewy old boxes. You know, I don't like doing that stuff. And it really takes a lot of planning and it takes a lot of energy, especially on the days where I, it, I, I'm not going to do that if I have having a chronic pain day. I'm not going to do that if I'm having a migraine day. So it takes some planning. It takes some luck of feeling good that day. Otherwise, I would ignore it. You know, and I think if I weren't aware, I think the Enneagram has brought some really good awareness, especially around my instincts about how I'm so, I would so much rather be making plans with people, be networking, be out in the community. I would so much rather be doing that than taking care of my house. But I've invested a lot of money into the house. So, you know, I have a lot riding on the success of the house. And then also realizing that the comfortability of being in a house, eventually, if I were to let mold sit, it would get worse. If I were to let the AC sit, then I wouldn't have any AC. The pain and suffering eventually would come. So it's like trying to plan ahead to get those things. Now, some people might not think that that's Enneagram work. For me, it is. Some of those things come really naturally for people who might be dominant in self-pres. I know my neighbor is always doing self-pres tasks, no problem. He comes over and helps me with my self-pres tasks sometimes, thank God. But I think for me, between taking care of my body, doing meal prep, going to the doctor, going on walks, going to therapy, taking care of my house or taking care of my car, all of those things fall under self-pres in, in my opinion. And that's hard for a social too. Right. 
I think you speak of something so important. And one is to understand our instincts and to know kind of the sequence or stacking, whatever school you study at. But what is the dominant? What's the repressed? I was in a retreat like last week and uh, it was Enneagram based. And one thing they were mentioning for me, because I'm self-pressed dominant, you know, like all that stuff I'm ahead of on. Right. But my repressed or blind, depending on what you call it, instinct is sexual. It's that one-to-one intimacy. And so once something that they mentioned, some of the teachers there, they mentioned, they said, your self-pres is so strong, it's taking the life and the energy out of your sexual instinct. And I was like, Dean, okay. And so one, I think it's important, obviously, to know your instincts, but something that you mentioned, this is how I experience it. With my repressed instinct, it's kind of like I don't have energy for the stuff. I don't get revved up for it. So do you experience it that way or how do you experience it? Yeah. I mean, that's why I let the mold sit for so long is there were just weeks that I didn't have the energy to deal with it. And so I just didn't. Whereas there are some things that I can't ignore, like relationships. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know, if something seems a little bit off in a relationship, I am quickly attuned to that. I want to talk about it. I want to make sure we're on the same page. I want to have that deep conversation. And it's not something that I can put off. I get physically ill if I put something like that off. My stomach will be nauseous. I'll have chills. I can't put that thing off. It's, it's almost a compulsion of having to fix that. And that's in relationships for me, especially heightened as a two. Whereas, I don't know, what about you? I mean, being sexual instinct repressed, are there conversations that you just don't have energy for like at certain times or people that you might not have energy for sometimes because you know that they're going to want to get deep in your feelings? Well, it can be that. Sometimes how I experience it the heaviest is kind of, say, for instance, I'll give one example that came up very recently. Say that a group wants to go eat somewhere, right? There's a group, a small group, wants to go eat somewhere. And um, they haven't really planned it out well. The food where we're going is, yeah, it's okay. And so the problem comes in is when like, say we're supposed to all go there and meet there. One, the place changes because they didn't think about the reservations and the place we were going to was fully booked. So now I'm hungry and I'm getting a little frustrated and patient. And then, like, when we get to this place, it's kind of like the place is okay. The food is all right. It's not that great. And so part of me, when this happens, the changing of plans because it wasn't planned out well and I'm hungry or hangry as I can get, I have to be careful is I have to really watch out because immediately I'll be like, I'm just going to do my own. I'm going to do what I'm, I'm going to go where I want to eat. I'm going to go or I'm going to go to the house and get my own food. Like, I'm not worried about these people. They can do what they want to do. I do what I want to do. And what that does because of that self-praise being so high, being all about me and making sure I get what I feel I need or whatever, I'll miss out on chances to have experiences with people in an intimate setting where it's a small group. Now, I didn't go home this time. I actually... I adjusted. I went with, I was frustrated at the beginning, (laughs) but I actually had a good conversation and there was intimacy in the conversations I was having with the different people. So that's how it kind of shows up for me. There's moments where I'm like, I know one time they had changed the plans a couple of times and I sent a voice message. I didn't even text the whole group. I said, I'm going home. I'm getting tired of this. And I may have used some colorful language in it too. I wasn't trying to be rude, but I was real frustrated and I was hangry. So I was like, I got to the house and was like, 
you know, maybe you should work on this self-presence thing a little bit more. <laughs> it is revved up, you know. That's kind of how it shows up for me. But see, that's the awareness piece that you're talking about. Because if I'm not aware that my, like, repressed blind instinct is um, sexual, then I'm thinking I'm in the right. I'm like, I'm going to take care of myself. Forget all that. But in actuality, it's just pushing me more further, further away from people and not developing the whole being of myself. Yeah, I'm the opposite where being a social too, but I will avoid myself by spending time with other people. I'll get lost in other people and miss myself. So that's been a big part of my, I think my therapist goal for myself is that she wants me to notice myself. So my therapist is a somatic experiencing therapist. Yes. And so it's not just noticing yourself in an intellectual way or a mental way. It's noticing your body and how your body feels and how your nervous system feels. Right now, I just had a really interesting session where she asked me how I was feeling in my body. And I had had a decent week. I hadn't had really a bad pain day or anything like that for a couple weeks. And so I said, I mean, I'm feel fine. She's like, well, how does your body feel? I'm like, it feels neutral, which is good. At least in my mind, it was good because my body wasn't screaming at me. And she's like, okay, but what does your body feel like when it's not screaming at you? And I was like, I don't know. Mm. I couldn't tell you that. (laughs) And so she talked about how feelings, and I've struggled a lot with depression. I've struggled really trying to find the happy half of emotions lately and struggled to find something that brings me real joy. And she was talking about how emotions are found in our bodies. And for people who struggle with chronic pain, we tend to focus on the neutral as a survival mechanism to get us through the pain. Like for example, there's a meditation that I'll do when I am in pain. I'll try to find a piece of my body, whether it's my knee, a finger, an elbow, a toe that feels neutral. And I will focus on the neutrality of that feeling to get me through the pain. And that's valid. She said, you know, that's a valid exercise to do, but she doesn't want me to just stop there at feeling neutral. And so she asked if there was a time where I could think of something where it felt good in my body. And so there was a night recently where I went with my parents to get ice cream and the humidity was down and it was after sunset. So it was a cool evening for summer, at least in St. Louis, Missouri. And I had to look at a feelings wheel (laughs) in order to... Uh, I get it. I had to look at a feelings wheel and I was like, what is the feeling that I was feeling? And the word I landed on was pleasant. Mm. It was pleasant. I wasn't like jumping for joy. I wasn't excited. You know, I I didn't have adrenaline boosting me. I mean, it was just pleasant. There was a slight breeze against my skin. I wasn't in pain. The ice cream tasted good. You know, it was a very pleasant evening. And so she had me sit in that pleasant memory and try to feel what that pleasant was. She's like, I'll take it. Like anything positive, like I'll take it. So we sat in the pleasant memory for a while, tried to somatically bring up what that felt like in my body. Then she had me find a memory where I had a migraine and then to sit in that memory, which was interesting. My heart started beating faster. I started to kind of sweat a little bit. I felt very irritable. My jaw tensed up. There were all these things that were happening, just the memory of having a migraine. Right. And so then we spent some time in that, which was really hard. And then she switched me back to the pleasant memory. Okay, now see how your body responds. My jaw relaxed. I felt less irritable, you know. And so she said that um, people who struggle with chronic pain 
often don't experience a lot of the happy half range of emotions because they're stuck in either pain or neutrality. And so she said, we're going to be working on trying to experience the some more happy emotions by noticing that in my body. So that's like been my homework lately is to notice how my body is responding in certain moments. And I'm particularly on the hunt for when it's a happy, pleasant, exciting, you know, feeling in my body because I need more of those. I need more of those moments. And I'm curious too about how this intersects with me being a two and feeling other people's emotions, but not feeling my own emotions. So that's been something that I've been thinking about a lot lately. It's me again. And another one of those funny commercials to remind you that the Kaizen Community Enneagram program is having open sessions. I do two cohorts a year. One starts in January, one starts in August. In this program, you will feel heard, seen, and connected. You will leave the program with way more knowledge, a deeper level of growth, and some lifelong friends. To sign up and learn more, go to kaizen-enneagram-community.mn.co or see the show notes or the Instagram bio link tree. All right, back to the episode. Ooh, that was so rich. Oh, my goodness. I mean, there's so many places I could go with what you were speaking on because the somatic piece, some would call the missing piece when we talk about a lot of Enneagram spaces. It's because it's like you said, it's a lot of head knowledge and we talk about the heart some, you know, emotions to a degree of wants and desires, but we don't really talk about like the feelings in the body. That is the area where if we can work on being present with our bodies the healing, everything, it's all tied deeply within our bodies. And so if we can start to do more work, understanding, listening, sitting with, pausing, breathing, checking in, (laughs) finding spots of neutrality or joy in our bodies, like you mentioned, like those are game changers in our growth. You know, it stops being just a head knowledge growth. Like I'm aware of what I do based on what I read. It's more like, oh, I feel it. Oh, I get it. And I think you have such a, a unique intersection of two-ness, of self-pressed being repressed and working through a chronic illness. And so I really want to honor the work you do and just like let you know like how amazing it is because it's a lot. And this is more like spiritual teachers talk about stuff like this. But for those like on the path of the Enneagram where the Enneagram kind of found us in like a weird way and somehow through our own pains, it's helping us to heal and grow and to work on ourselves in a way it's like we've kind of been chosen. And I know it may sound weird to people listening, <laughs> but the gift of the Enneagram and those who choose to use the inner work to truly work on healing ourselves, it's kind of like we've kind of been chosen on the path a little bit because everybody everybody doesn't. Like everybody doesn't get it, even though the Enneagram totally, and I know you totally agree, could help the total world if everybody would get on board. Oh my goodness. (laughs) But I just think for some of us who are truly seeking and yearning for more, for better, part of it is like there's something that's thrust us into it. You know, there's something that we no longer could deny or ignore. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And especially in your case, in the physical sense, right? Yeah. The survival sense. And so I just want to honor that because just your story is incredible. You may not think that, but it is. I don't know if you know that. It is. (laughs) Thank you. But I definitely want to share that. So just looking at, say, for instance, because there's going to be twos listening, there's going to be self-pressed, repressed types listening. Say they're along the journey. 
And you definitely had experience working the journey. So what would be some, I would say, advice or words of wisdom or just something you would want to share with people, anybody in general, but especially twos and maybe those who are self-pressed, repressed, what is something you would like to share with them to maybe help them along the journey? Yeah. For people who are self-pressed, repressed, I would say maybe set aside time to pay attention to the self-pres voice. It doesn't have to be a day. It doesn't even have to be an hour. It could be five minutes at first. I have a post-it note above my computer that is as, I give myself permission to notice how my body is responding and function accordingly. And that's something that I have to give myself permission to do, something that I have to remind myself to do. And so whether that's just like once a day looking at that post-it note and realizing like, oh, I've been sitting, like I fractured my tailbone in 2018 and I still have like tailbone pain. I've been sitting all day and my tailbone is hurting. I should get up and walk around and do some stretches that will help it. But there are days where I don't do it and I will go the whole day without helping myself there. <laughs> you know, I will just be pushing through and my mind is on other things. So I would say maybe set aside some time, even if it's a reminder on your phone that reminds you to to check in with your body or set aside time like an evening of like, okay, I'm, I'm going to set a timer for 30 minutes. And in that 30 minutes, I'm going to clean my house. And whatever I get done in that 30 minutes, that's what I get done. And then I can go on and do my merry way. But I've done that before where there have been so many self-pressed tasks that have been ahead of me. And I'm so overwhelmed. I don't even know where to start okay, set a timer for 30 minutes. And after 30 minutes, you don't have to do any more self-press. <laughs> right, yeah. So um, maybe something like that could be helpful for twos. I think also setting aside time for yourself. It doesn't sound practical, especially if you if you are in charge of a lot of people at work. Usually twos are holding things all together in whatever community they're in. And it feels like things might drop if you take a minute for yourself. but I would say that you will drop the ball at some point if you don't take time for yourself, even if it's five minutes, even if it's a vacation day, even if it's allowing yourself to drink your coffee on the front porch in the morning before work with no distractions, you know, something that can be just for you. And also, I would say making a list of things that you like about yourself that have nothing to do with what you do for others. Because that's something that I am currently working on is trying to figure out my identity. Who am I and what do I like about myself, even if I'm not doing, even if I'm not helping other people? Um, what do I like about myself? I personally end up in a space where I'm spending a lot of time alone. I don't really enjoy spending time alone. So I'm trying to figure out how to spend time with myself instead of choosing myself as like a last resort, realizing that I do choose myself as a last resort a lot of the time. So um, trying to find the things that I like about myself makes me want to spend more time with myself. That was so beautiful. Oh my goodness. That was great. Um, and when you say you like you choose yourself as last resort, oh my goodness, that's deep. And I am so the opposite. <laughs> I am so the opposite. <laughs> <laughs> It is so interesting. I was like, and I choose myself first every time. I have to work on it. Not every time, but <laughs> so that just shows the interesting part of these instincts and being aware of them 
No, that was absolutely great information, wisdom, I would say, actually, for people in general, every type, to be honest, but especially twos and those who are self-praised and pressed. So as a coach, because your website is interesting, can you say your website? Yeah, it's com. All right. So can you break that down? Share why not just an Enneagram coach. <laughs> so I am an acting coach. I want to be an improv coach. I'm currently taking some improv classes right now. I am a leadership coach and an Enneagram coach. So I'm not just one type of coach. Also, just I'm not just any a type of coach, basically. <laughs> one thing that I enjoy doing, I recently led one person through one of Brene Brown's books. We did like a book study together and then looked at that through the lens of her Enneagram type. I like the intersection of a lot of things, whether that's theater, whether that's just life or leadership specifically. I, I like to use improv exercises in my leadership coaching, in group work. I love that. I think that's why it's um, I'm not just one type of coach. I can be a mixture, I guess. Yes. I, I wanted to share that just so people would know that you bring different forms of knowledge and wisdom to your coaching, like if people come to you. And I think the piece around improv and acting, I found so amazing when we, like, we first met. You was like, oh, yeah, I do this and do that. And this is some of the things. And here are some of the things I see with specific types when it comes to improv and different things. And I was like, wow, that's a pocket of knowledge I've never explored or even thought about. But it is huge, even for people who are not actors or actresses. So like, it's huge to be able to understand how we respond, how we act, and how can we even maybe get into our bodies and get a little uncomfortable, you know? So can you speak to that some, like something you've seen that helps along those lines? Yeah, the intersection of improv and Enneagram, I've, I still haven't nailed it down quite yet to a clean definition, but improv work is ego work. Mm, yes! <laughs> so... <laughs> you get on stage. The goal is to not be funny. That's not the goal. If your goal is to be funny, then you don't have the right improv training, in my opinion. You don't have the, the right goal. And the goal of improv is to be a truth teller and to, when you're working with a team, it's very team oriented. You are not trying to set yourself up for the punchline or the joke. You're trying to set up your teammate for the success. And your teammate's trying to set you up for the success. And so you're constantly thinking about the group. You also can't have a filter because there's no time to put your thoughts through a filter and think about what would be the most smart or bantery or intellectual thing to say here. And like, no, you just have to go with your gut and, and say it. What I'm interested in is how people's egos get in the way of them doing improv. Because when we get on stage, we want to look a certain way. We want to act a certain way. And there's no time for that. Egos get in the way and end up making the scene not as collaborative, not as organic. And so like I notice one struggle that I have as a two is I want to help other people <laughs> in the scene. So... <laughs> Um, there was an exercise we were doing where two people were on stage. I was on the sidelines. A couple of other people were on the sidelines. And at some point, somebody yells, freeze. The people on stage have to freeze in whatever shape or position they're in. And then somebody from the sidelines goes out, tags them out, and then resumes their physical position and then resumes the scene using that physical position. 
And so, and the story continues and, and it shape shifts and things like that. I noticed that I was watching and for when people were in an uncomfortable physical position and they probably needed somebody to tag them out, like they needed like a relief yeah. pitcher <laughs> to come get them. And I noticed this because our teacher had us turn around at one point to where we were only listening to the scene. We weren't watching the scene. And then we would yell freeze and we had no idea where they were in the scene except for listening. We didn't have any visual cues. So we would yell freeze and then you have to go resume whatever position they are on stage. And I couldn't, I wasn't able to be, I noticed my impulse to be helpful. I couldn't tell what was going to be more helpful when to yell freeze. <laughs> so it just had to be a literally a random place for me to yell freeze. I don't know if I'm explaining that exercise well, but it was, I noticed my instinct, my compulsion to be helpful as opposed to actually do the game of the scene. And so I realized that was ego getting in the way. That was ego trying to anticipate other people's needs in order to be successful. So what I would love to do is have my own improv class and have everyone know the Enneagram <laughs> and then do improv exercises. And I have done improv and Enneagram workshops before wing grad school. I discovered that I had a lot of fours and nines in this Enneagram workshop that I, I taught. And we I taught them improv exercises. And we realized that when a four and a nine are doing a scene together, both of them feel awkward. But when a four feels awkward, they over talk and they just keep talking and talking and talking and talking. The nine completely shuts down and doesn't say a word. I had three pairs of these fours and nines. And the same thing was happening in all of their scenes. The four was monopolizing the conversation and the nine wasn't saying anything. And so I had to intervene. We took a, took a beat and I told the four, okay, you can only say one sentence at a time and then you have to wait for the nine to respond. And the nine, you have to start the conversation and you also only have to, you only have to say one sentence, but you have to say a sentence. And so that challenged both of their personality types, but it actually created a more well-balanced and equal scene. So that was something that I discovered in one of my Enneagram workshops. Just realizing how ego takes over, ego wants to protect. In improv, you're doing something that is new and that's unpredictable. You're not in control and ego wants to be in control. And so improv, just by nature, means that you have to set your ego aside and go with the flow and trust other people. So that's why I say it's ego work. It's a perfect kind of microcosm of life, you know, like what you're talking about. When you talk about being on stage, it's interesting when we are in front of certain people, certain groups, certain environments, it's how we turn on this personality or ego is in control. Then when we're really, really biased, right? The difference, you know, so that is so fascinating. This amazing, crazy thing popped in my head. So for everybody listening, July 20th through the 23rd, 2023 is the International Enneagram Global Conference in San Francisco. Market calendars, I want to see you there. July 20th through the 23rd, 2023. Market calendars, it'll be in San Fran. What I think, Elizabeth, is I would love for you to submit an application to be a presenter and use what you're talking about in a presentation. Somehow use an improv and ego with people in a presentation. I mean, I can't guarantee it will make it through. Don't get me wrong. Like, I'm, I'm part of the board, but I don't make all the decisions. Like, we're a team. But I really think and believe this would be absolutely great to have there. And I would like to participate personally. 
<laughs> can it be an interactive workshop? Like, does it just have to be a lecture? It could be like, get on our feet and put, see this in action. Yes, 100%. It can be all in action. You can do what you want. We'll find the type of room and the space you need. We can do all of the best we can. Because I think this is, I don't know, I, I love it. It's phenomenal. I think it's brilliant. That would be really fun. Yes. <laughs> Especially since everyone in the room, well, maybe everyone, but a lot of people in the room would know their Enneagram types. Yep. And so there could be some interesting feedback from people. Yeah, that could be really interesting. I'll think about it. Please. Yes. 95%, I tell you at least, well, no, probably more. So you won't have that, I guess, challenge of like, I hope these people know their type. You won't have that challenge. <laughs> oh my goodness. So in wrapping up, I love this episode. Like you spoke to the depth of so many things and you shared your story, which is beautiful. How can people reach you or reach out to you and find you? Yeah. So my website, not just anyacoach.com, has contact form. You can email me directly at elisworm at gmail.com. That's E-L-I-S as in Sam, W-U-R-M as in Mary at gmail.com. Awesome. And those will be in the show notes for anyone who is uh, listening and want to get in contact with Elizabeth. She's incredible. She does have a lot of pockets of knowledge and wisdom, and uh, she's a warrior in a lot of different spaces. That is definitely a point you want to share. That's all I have for this episode. If your ego is getting in the way and it's about to trip up and you're about to act a fool out there straight out of the ego, take a deep breath, breathe, and do it for the ground. Make a smarter choice and a healthier choice for yourself. And uh, we'll see you in the next episode. Bye.